Armstrong. I'm a teacher here at Spirit Rock. I've been involved with Spirit Rock almost since its inception, was the executive director when we put these buildings up and have done uh, many roles here at Spirit Rock. I worked here for, for many years. I worked in the kitchen as executive director. I was computer support for a while. It shows how little they knew giving me that job, but that's what I did. Um, so I, I've really um, spent many, actually I'd hate to add up, I was going to say hours, but it's probably more like years uh, here on the land at Spirit Rock, whether it's been working here, um, being meditating or being a teacher. And so helping this place f flourish is really one of the things that's dear to my heart. And the, I have two real interests here at Spirit Rock, and they are curriculum and community. And by curriculum, I mean helping people deepen in their understanding and practice of meditation and the Dhamma, providing vehicles, forums, um, classes and structures, programs to enable people to do that. And then community is Sangha, is people coming together and connecting with each other and supporting each other and sharing their interest and their practice. And both of those really go together. You can't really have one without the other to, to really flourish. And so there's many things that I've done here at Spirit Rock to try and help that um, uh, manifest for people, including, you know, doing programs that, that are sort of have a, a length to them. The main one that I've done is called the Dedicated Practitioners Program. And that's a, a two-year program for people that have sat a number of retreats and are sincere practitioners two years, five retreats, we have homework and monthly classes, and uh, we just finished DPP-4, so hundreds, 400 people have been through that program here, and it really serves both those functions because they, they learn a lot in that two years of study, um, but also it's not si in silence, so they really develop strong community, so that's just an example of, of the th kinds of things that I'm interested in, in teaching here at Spirit Rock. But I'm also curious about what brings you out to a Monday night to a class like this. As I asked in the beginning, who's here, who's new, and who comes here a lot. And I know a lot of people, this really is something that's very central to their week, to come out here and, and sit with other people, hear the teachings. So I'm going to do a bit of market research, um, just for my own curiosity. As I said, I don't come that often, and in thinking about how we can serve you, how we can serve people who come to Spirit Rock. This kind of questioning is helpful, actually. At Spirit Rock, we often do kind of surveys or evaluations after events just to find out how was that for you? Was it helpful? What did you learn? What did you like? What was, what, 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 how was your experience here? And that really does help us to understand how we can best support people in their practice. Uh, but I know that market research is not often um, something that we're fond of. You know, you get that phone call and someone says, can I ask you a few questions? And the immediate response is usually, no, I don't have time. I'm too busy. I don't, you know, I always wonder who it is they get to talk to them because I know most of us just hang up the phone and somehow they find these people that they ask questions of. But it is helpful to find out what people are thinking. I mean, they do polls, market research on all kinds of questions. And as they say, you can usually tailor the results to get the, the answers that you want. It's a 
whole art to, to doing this kind of thing. But I do have some sympathy for those people in, in those kind of professions asking those questions because there was a time when I, I did make some livelihood doing market research. I had a, one of my incarnations, I lived in England. I lived in England for about five years, helped start a med I was a manager of a retreat center and then helped uh, start and lived in a meditation community. And, to support ourselves, we ended up working for this funny little company called Protocol. I was living in this tiny village in the southwest of England, and this um, American man, Andrew Page, somehow also landed in this tiny little village, and he'd worked, I think he was fleeing from Madison Avenue, working in advertising, and he, he, he literally has gone as far as you could go from Madison Avenue to the main street of Totnes, which had about 3,000 people living there. And he had these big ideas. He was so un-English. It was, it was comical some of the time because his, he, he was so different from most of the people, especially in that small country town. But he was really way ahead of his time. Um, I remember we did a lot with technology. And one of the things we did at the time was totally cutting edge. We had these little computers given to us by AT, uh, not AT&T, BT, British Telecom. It was their version of kind of AT&T, the big telephone company. And computers would, personal computers were just becoming available. And we had these little computers, one piece things. We connect to a dial up modem and we connected them to, from a school in Totnes to a school in America. And you know, someone would type in a, a sentence and it would appear magically on the other side of the Atlantic. And they would type back and it would appear. It was like the beginning of texting, you know, it was, so amazing to have this direct communication by typing. And of course, just as I was driving around in Woodacre today, I saw this kid on a skateboard texting, you know, as he was skateboarding. I'm like, it's getting, you know, it's so ubiquitous now. You can't turn off from your connections with people and especially the kids growing up. But uh, so we did market research, um, mainly for government bodies to try and figure out how to, again, provide services and, and uh, get people to go places. So it was, it was a part of my professional, actually pretty unprofessional background. It was one of those places where I learned you only have to know a little bit more than someone else to be a teacher, you know, because we did training in desktop publishing and communications and all kinds of things. It was an interesting time of, of my life. But here I'm interested in meditation. So I'm just curious, what brings you out to Spirit Rock? What, or what, it put it more directly even, what do you think meditation can do for you or what has meditation done for you? And if people can, would be willing just to call out some simple replies to that. What do you think it can do for you? Why do you come? Or what has it done for you? And I can repeat the <coughs> comments so people can hear. Anyone willing to say? Sanity. Sanity. Yes. I've been doing meta for the last um, year and a half and I think it's, it's completely changed my life. Lovely. So she's doing metta, which is a practice of loving kindness, cultivating loving kindness, and she thinks it's completely changed her life. So that's quite radical. What else? What else does it help with? Parenting. Parenting. Driving. Driving. <laughs> the basics. Making you less reactive. Making you, making you less reactive. Food for the soul, so kind of healing in some way. Grounded. Grounding. Focusing. Focusing. Compassion. Compassion. Peace. Peace. Stillness. Stillness. 
De-stressing, that's a big one. Equanimity. Relationships. Less of a jerk. Let's be real here. Not so elevated. Let's just try to be less of a jerk. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Thank you. Managing your business and working with others. It's a really livelihood in how we do that. Great. Well, you can see from the range of replies, it's really touching all areas of our lives. So there's this great dialogue going on at the moment about meditation, because I'm sure you're very aware, it may be even why you're here. Meditation, which used to be such a a fringe thing, um, is becoming mainstream. And I've said that to people, and people say, you've got to be kidding, it's not mainstream yet. But to me, it feels more mainstream, because I've been meditating, you know, since 1980, and being used to kind of being seen as the, the weird one, you know, doing something a little strange. And now, meditation, especially mindfulness meditation, is kind of everywhere, right? You know, it's amazing. And, and we, are, we talk amongst ourselves as, as teachers um, that five years ago, I wouldn't have imagined that this was going to be the doorway that the Buddha's message would come into the Western culture, would be through mindfulness and mindfulness and almost everything. I just read this morning on Facebook that George Stephanopoulos meditates, as does his co-anchor Dan Harris, who's quite a serious meditator. These are news people on uh, ABC, I think it is. You know, you're just reading more and more that, that people in all walks of life are interested in meditation. And we actually just finished up here at Spirit Rock uh, an international Vipassana teacher meeting. So we had, I don't know, 50 or 60 teachers from the U.S., from Canada, and Europe, pretty much, in, you know, sort of like the World Series. It's not exactly world, but that, that's where we, they came from, um, to come together and talk about how we're teaching, you know, what's happening in our different centers and scenes. And particularly, we had two sessions. One is about this welling of interest in whether you call it applied mindfulness or secular mindfulness or mindfulness without the Buddhism, basically. And how do we relate to that? What, what is our role? Do we have a role to play? And many teachers, Buddhist teachers, are forging ahead and doing all kinds of, I think, really exciting things with you know, Google and Facebook and, and all of the you know, high-tech companies down in Silicon Valley tra- you know, traveling around and, and giving teachings. And, and these companies are really benefiting, really seem to be liking this kind of teaching. So there's a whole kind of questioning going on about this. Um, you know, at, so it's great, it's wonderful that people are accessing these teachings through that doorway in their workplace, through, you know, as I said, it's mindfulness and everything, in education, in hospitals, in prisons, in schools, in uh, therapy, in business, you know, the, in the army. It's almost like where isn't it rather than where is it because it, it's becoming so popular. If you look up statistics, there's all of this research being done and the number of papers on mindfulness and its efficacy is skyrocketing because people are really finding these benefits like you uh, called out just a few moments ago. So it's kind of fascinating to, to think about this and, and what what 
what is where this is leading and the benefits that might come and the challenges because there definitely are some as this movement gains momentum. But what was also interesting is we had another session which wasn't just about that, it was about what is mindfulness? Now you'd think by now we would know, right? Uh, you know, we've been teaching, practicing at Spirit Rock's been here for all these years and of course long before that. But it was that actually a really interesting presentation or session we had. One teacher in particular, Gil Fronsdale, has been doing some research and really coming to some different ideas about what mindfulness actually is. And he's, his um, research is showing that mindfulness isn't something that you do. And I tried to refer to that a little in my instructions. We're, we often, you know, we take something up and now this is, you know, now this is, you know, now I meditate and my meditation is hitting everything that's not meditation on the head. You know, we, we can take, have that kind of attitude because it's so familiar to us to, to, to create an identity, even around being a meditator and how we meditate. He said it's actually a state of being and it has the qualities, again, that people mentioned and that I alluded to in the meditation of this calm, this steadiness, this stillness. And so it was interesting to actually have, you know, this group of 50 or 60 teachers who've been teaching and practicing for many, many years have this basic discussion. What is it we're talking about when we talk about mindfulness? And I think one of the reasons we can have that discussion is it's like this I don't know, what, what are they, those universal tools, you know, where, well, like a Swiss army knife, I guess, but even more, more than that, where it's like something for everyone almost. And the reason is that it can have all these different effects and some quite opposite. People talked about calm and still and other people about being engaged, driving their work, is its simplicity, its essence is this turning inwards and in that turning inwards, each one of us creates, you could almost say our own toolbox, our own engagement with our inner experience. And in shifting our relationship or shifting our focus from being outward oriented, which most of us are most of the time, it's like, you know, engaging through the eyes, a little bit through what we hear, a lot coming out the mouth, but we're engaging with people, with objects we're doing, we're moving stuff around, right? You know, that's what a lot of life is, moving stuff around, including ourselves, you know, going here and there, doing stuff, moving paper, moving, now it's more moving, I don't know, digit, di digits, pixels or whatever through computers, but we're a lot about doing. And meditation, the basic focus or function of meditation is to shift that focus from out there to in here. And this is what is quite <coughs> radical, is to turn inward and actually start to pay attention and begin to understand our own minds and hearts. Because it's only through that understanding that these shifts that you already mentioned can begin to happen. So I'm really interested, obviously, in this shift and that the, the, the function or the purpose of meditation is to become our own experts on ourselves, 
and how our minds and hearts work so we can begin to disentangle, unentangle, or not become, not be such a jerk as someone said. So we start to learn, you know, how these minds work and the suffering that we cause through being a jerk to ourselves and, you know, we're the jerkiest to ourselves, right? We're the meanest and the most critical and the most harsh and unforgiving to ourselves and and that obviously then spreads out in our relationships and interactions. So in looking to understand that, I've become interested in looking at it through the lens of sort of evolution and biology. And I am not a scientist in the slightest sense of the word, so, you know, very rudimentary understanding of, of both of these. But I think it's interesting to recognize that we are basically animals mammals. And we have this long evolutionary history that's repeated in our brains. You know, they talk about the triune brain where there's this big sort of human forebrain. And then, again, I don't know that even the terminology, the mammalian brain that's more emotions and things like that. And then deep in there is this thing called the amygdala, the reptilian brain. And that runs the show a lot of the time, more than we would like to think, I'm afraid to say. So we have this evolution is present right, right here within us. Um, and if we, so if we look back in evolutionary time, again, I don't know, millions, billions of years, life started in some way when amoebas, those kind of single-celled, um, I don't know whether they animals, whatever they are, came into being. And when they achieve this evolutionary advantage of being able to move towards food and away from pain or danger, and that motion towards food, away from danger, gave, I don't know how, how it worked, but gave them an evolutionary advantage. And those, that functioning obviously uh, allowed those beings to evolve and become, you know, you track the time, us and everything else, everything else that's living on the planet from those very instinctual kinds of movements. And for, the, for you know, again, my rudimentary understanding of high school biology or whatever, you know, for amoebas to, to, to multiply, they divided, right? They, to multiply, they divided, to, to actually... Uh, procreate, they separated. It's the way we have differentiated now. For us to procreate, of course, we have to come together. We have a lot more bits and pieces to fit together, and it's much more complicated than that. And We make it a lot more complicated because our minds get involved, obviously. But we, we have those basic kind of energies in us to move towards pleasure and to pull away from pain. Hardwired in us. And so the the, the evolutionary drive towards movement, towards activity, very central to who we are as animals. And then another thing that happened evolutionarily is, you know, as, as we evolved from whatever, the primates to more the human beings, is that we developed these big brains. And one of the things we did with those brains or why we developed them is making connections beginning to understand how things work, to be able to understand time and to project forward into the future, past into the past, 
which most most animals, if they can do it at all, it's only very you know very uh, temporary you know in short time periods. But you know our ancestors, the ones that when the bush shook and they looked and said, you know, we should pay attention here. Well, the ones that didn't, they're not our ancestors, right? Because they they got eaten. So you know we we got programmed to pay attention to what might be scary, what might be threatening out there, and to learn, as I said, how to move towards pleasure, food, sex, all of those drives. So these connections, figuring things out, making connections, seeing patterns, these two things, as well as probably many others, but these are what came to me as I was thinking about talking about this tonight, these two things are very deep within us as animals. Right? And then... We come to meditation, Monday night class, wherever it is, and what do we ask you to do? Sit still and not think. So here we are. We're wired to move, right? To be active, to to move towards and away. We're wired to make connections, to have our brains, you know, plan and worry and whatever. And in meditation, you're meant to do the very opposite of that. It's no wonder it's so difficult. It is difficult, isn't it? I mean, there's some basic way you can all sit still, but to actually have the mind settle on a meditation object and not wander off into thoughts of past or future or get sleepy or aversive or restless or whatever, this is really difficult. And I'm always curious why people continue to want to do it, because I know that it's difficult. I just look at my own mind, and I see how crazy it can be sometimes. I just want to get up in the morning, I do a little bit of yoga, and let's meditate. I do it pretty much every day, and the mind just shoots off, right, into what I have to do and what I didn't do and what I need to say to someone and the list of things, because that's so deeply wired in us. I actually give a whole talk on restlessness because I I really think that it's the major hindrance for most Westerners because not only do we have these very kind of primal urges both to movement, to to activity, and to making connections, but we've we've, um, been deeply conditioned through our culture, through our education, through our training, through the way we relate to, you know, through media, to actually have this kind of flickering attention that's always looking for a new hit. So meditation really is challenging for most of us and to learn how to do it, to learn how to actually choose the stillness, to actually choose the simplicity. That's part of the radical shift that I talked about a little bit already. We actually have to find out how to engage those energies because it's we can't do it by suppression. We can't do it by gritting our teeth and kind of anchoring down and saying, no, goddammit, I'm going to sit here and sit still. You can, you can try that. You probably all have a little bit. And let me know how that goes for you because <laughs> most of the time it doesn't work that well. And certainly the mind. Have you tried to anchor your mind? How did it work? You know? It does. You can do it a little bit. You can do a lot through sheer will, but eventually you just get exhausted. So it has to be some deep shift in how we relate to experience 
that allows us to have those benefits that you all mentioned earlier, the stillness and the peace and the calm and the, the connection, the compassion and the kindness. Human beings weren't so different 25, 2600 years ago when the Buddha was teaching, had these highly developed brains, had very complex social systems, had the pressure of making a living and figuring things out. And he looked around and he said, the way people usually react, relate to life, which is just some complex variation of what the amoeba did, go towards pleasure, run away from pain. He said, those strategies don't work. Ultimately, they can get you so far. And we all still use them, you know, not to deny. We all still basically respond a lot of the time out of those. But ultimately, they don't work. Partly because of these big brains, we know that there's problems out there. I mean, we can feel it right here, you know, the stresses and strains of having a body and all the ways it can break down or go wrong or we don't like the way it looks or it's too tall or too short or whatever it is. You know, there are those kinds of, that kind of suffering. But we also know, and because of the way the mind works, that we get attached to the people that we love, our friends and family, loved ones. And so we worry about them. We have anxiety and stress. We have to make a living and we have all those worries because we can project into the future. What am I going to do for livelihood? How am I going to take care of myself? What if I get sick? And for those of us that are on the ball even a little bit, we know the big one is out there. Death and dying, dying, you know, getting sick, old age sickness and death. That's what woke the Buddha up. He said, you can go running around all you like, chasing after pleasure, avoiding pain. Nothing Avoid, nothing helps you to avoid that. He wanted to find a solution to that challenge of life, the one you can't run away from. So that was his insight, was that there is dukkha. That was a word he used, dukkha. It's often translated as suffering, but that's, even though it includes suffering, that's a little strong. It's more like discontent or unsatisfactoriness. Things don't go the way we want them to go. Whether you're talking in the short term and the struggles we have in life, or as I said, this big thing that's hanging out there that, you know, at some point we're going to die. And who, who wants that? You know, most of us don't. We want to live. We want to be happy. So he said, we need to shift our perspective on things, on this mind, on this heart, and have a different relationship to experience. He saw how sensitive we are, and we are very sensitive, physically, emotionally. You know, I don't know what the mechanics of testing are, but, you know, just all the different range of colors that the eye can distinguish, or how light a touch you can feel, you know, how sensitive we are. And that's just on the physical level. How, how sensitive we are to temperature and, you know, what's the right, like this is a little warm now, right? We like a little cooler and then someone opens a window and then it's too cold. And, you know, we can go through a lot of the day, too hot, too cold, you know, like Goldilocks, never quite right. You know, a lot of our life is the Goldilocks syndrome of just trying to find that middle ground. So we're always struggling and adjusting as a Tibetan phrase, samsara, which is this worldly condition, is trying to correct. So samsara, 
We're always trying to make it right. So we're very sensitive. We have to really recognize that. And emotionally, how sensitive are we? It just can take a glance from someone, right? And we can feel wounded. And if someone says something harsh or critical, or we feel not accepted, really can hurt us, can't it? Can really make us feel wounded or unlovable. So we are these sensitive creatures. We feel a lot. To try to work with that whole world of emotions is very complex. And, you know, very, there are lots of skillful modalities out there for working with emotions, therapies, etc. The Buddha simplified it. And he talked about not so much feeling, though he, feelings in the sense of emotions, though he did talk about those and how to work with them skillfully. But even more directly, he talked about what he called feeling tone, or we translate as feeling tone. He used the word Vedana. Anyone know that word, Vedana? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what does it mean? Feeling tone. <laughs> Feeling tone. I think that's called, what is it? Circular. What? Syllogism. Anyway, feeling tone, Vedana. Pleasant, the fact that most, everything impacts us. Everything as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, neutral. And so what do we do when things are pleasant? We're like the amoeba, right? Boom. You know, so there you are, amoeba, boom. They want it. When it's unpleasant? Aversion. Aversion, push it away. Amoeba, I'm out of here, back away. Or if it's neutral, we're like a you know, we just kind of float around. We don't notice, we don't connect, you know. It's a little embarrassing, isn't it? We're not that different than you know, these one-celled organisms. This is what we're doing. So the Buddha talked about noticing how things, impacting, how things impact us and creating a different relationship to that by using mindfulness is central, is central to changing that relationship and actually finding happiness. You know, when I thought about this talk tonight, there were so many different ways I could go with how I wanted to start with the sort of evolutionary stuff and this kind of primal nature. But this is such a, you know, a central teaching. I thought it might be, many of you have probably heard it before, but I don't think we can hear it too many times. And so I actually wanted to read to you the Buddha's words on this movement of what happens when we're struck by something pleasant, something unpleasant, something neutral. So this is from the Vedana Samyutta Nikaya, which are the the teachings of the Buddha from the suttas. These are the the texts as they were written down, um, as much as people could know of them, of what the Buddha said. They were held in memory and and oral recitation for 500 years and then written down. So it's a little dense, but um, it it hopefully will get to what it's pointing to because he's talking to us very directly. And he starts by talking about an untaught or uninstructed worldling. And I'm afraid to tell you that that is us. Because most of the time, we're uninstructed meaning we don't know. It's not that we haven't had an education, but we don't know how the mind works. And so we get caught again and again. An untaught worldling, O monks, experiences pleasant feelings. 
he or she experiences painful feelings and she experiences neutral feelings. A well-taught noble disciple, that's someone who's come to some degree of awakening, likewise experiences pleasant, painful, and neutral feelings. Now, what is the distinction, the difference that exists between a well-taught noble disciple and an untaught worldling? When an untaught worldling is touched by a painful feeling, she worries and grieves, he laments, beats his breast, breasts, weeps, and is distraught. She thus experiences two kinds of feelings, a bodily and a mental feeling. It is if a person were pierced by a dart and following the first piercing, she is hit by a second dart. So that person will experience feelings caused by two darts. It is similar with an untaught worldling. When touched by a painful feeling, he worries and grieves, laments, beats his breast, weeps and is distraught. So she experiences two kinds of feeling a bodily and a mental feeling. Having been touched by that painful feeling, she resists and resents it. Then in him who so resists and resents that painful feeling, an underlying tendency of resistance comes to be in the mind. Under the impact of that painful feeling, he then proceeds to enjoy sensual happiness. And why does she do so? An untaught worldling, O monks, does not know of any escape from painful feelings except the pursuit of sensual happiness. Then in him who enjoys sensual happiness, an underlying tendency to lust for pleasant feelings comes to underlie the mind. He does not know, according to the, the facts, the arising and ending, as, uh, ending of these feelings, nor the gratification, the danger, and the escape connected with these feelings. Same with the neutral feeling. A pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, or a neutral feeling, one is bound by that. Such a one, O monks, is called an untaught worldling who is fettered by birth, old age, by death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. He is fettered by suffering, thus I declare. This is what the Buddha said. When we don't understand, if we have a painful feeling, there's not just the painful feeling, there's the lamentation, is the word he uses, and the resistance to it. Why is this happening? This shouldn't be happening. It's their fault it's happening. It's my fault it's happening. There's some reason that it's happening. So we build this world of craving and confusion and clinging around this feeling that exacerbates it. And the only way we know to get out of it is to run away from it, is to try and uh, push it away by chasing pleasant feelings. And so we can be on this cycle again and again and again of refusal to feel, being overwhelmed by painful feelings, and our only escape is pleasant, chasing after pleasant feelings. And this happens very quickly. A teacher I've been studying with this... Um, past few years, Venerable Analayo, said that, again, he was talking about the evolutionary nature, that, that as, as animals we needed to respond very quickly, just like the amoeba or a, you know, a deer or whatever, to these painful feelings, to get away, or to run after food or sex or whatever, deeply wide in us. But now, as humans, hopefully evolved humans in the 21st century, that, those responses don't serve us so well. We're in a different cultural environment 
And it actually can lead us into more suffering, to have these reactions of aversion and craving and hanging on. So as the Buddha said, we need to start to understand how this mind works and begin to disentangle a little that knee-jerk reaction of it's unpleasant, I don't like it, I'm out of here, or I strike out in anger, or it's pleasant, I want it, how can I hold on to it? These strategies don't work. And I'm, again, I'm sure you're here because you've seen for yourself that they don't work so well. But we need to recognize how deeply conditioned they are. And I think I like to talk about this kind of as a, I don't know, it's okay that it's difficult. You know, this is what the human mind is like. This is really deeply challenging work that you, for whatever reason, personal reason that you have, have chosen to take on. But we start to see there's no alternative. When you see there actually is a choice, when you hear the Dhamma, the truth, and someone says, look at your mind, and how basically you are responsible for what you're experiencing. Previously, we tend to blame, don't we? You know, it's out there. It's because of this fact, that relationship, my job, my commute, you know, my car, my, my mother, whatever it is. And sure, they all have a role to play in the conditioned nature of things. But ultimately, ultimately, this shift has to happen where we start to want to understand how this mind and heart work so we don't suffer so much. And also so we don't cause so much suffering to other people because we do, don't we? When, we? when we get activated in that way, when we're impacted in that way, we tend to strike out, to, to speak and act unskillfully. So we have to start, be motivated to start to look in this way and also to believe that it's possible. So both those things are necessary. We have to be motivated, and we have to believe that it's possible. Both of them are, you know, kind of difficult, but both are necessary to really see how this all comes together. And to see it starts with this willingness to actually go against this deep conditioning of movement and going and getting and being and, you know, rushing around doing stuff and sitting still, and looking inwards. And for most of us, they say, self-news is often not good news. You look in that mind and it's kind of crazy, right? It's humbling, it's embarrassing to see all of the stories it tells, and the places it goes, and the things it puts together, and the images it has, you know, whether they're of lust or craving, or strong images of aversion and cruelty. It's all in there. You know, it's all in here. So we have to be okay with that. And again, that's why I think the big picture is helpful. Our minds, as unique as they are, are not that different. Not that different from each other. Not that different from that old amoeba back there that was, you know, pushing and pulling on stuff. So we just need to start to see that. 
Annie Lamont, that great uh, writer, she's so funny. I read some articles of hers today because I wanted to look up this quote. She says something like, my mind is a dangerous neighborhood. I try not to go there alone. <laughs> and so it's why we do this. We come together to meditate, to hear people talk about the Dhamma, because if we were just on our own, we'd, go, we'd give up. You know, it's, it's so crazy. It's so difficult. So we need the support, the community that I talked about uh, before. We need our spiritual friends, our connections to help us know this. And we see, need to understand how it all works. And that it is possible to change. The Buddha said something like, if it wasn't possible, I wouldn't ask you to do so. But it is possible. So I do ask you to do so. And so we begin this exploration and start to look deeply into our own minds and hearts and understand where the suffering is here and now. And it's very immediate. You know, these feedbacks are very, we said, we're so sensitive. And shifting this perspective from, from you know, out there and it's to you know, what's wrong with the world, and if only I had a X, Y, and Z, then I'd be happy. You know, if this was different, then I'd be happy. We start to realize it doesn't work that way. You know, you can get some, certainly, sure, some kinds of happiness, no doubt, and they're important. To feel good in the body, to be, feel safe in your home, to have good friends, be able to take care of yourself, yes. But there's some point beyond that that it, it just doesn't go to give us the deep satisfaction, happiness that we're looking for. Again, I was on Facebook a while ago. I don't go on that often, maybe about once a month. But my young niece, who's in Australia, she's about 16 or 17, she had posted this like it was a revelation. And it said, everything you do is based on the choices you make. It's not your parents, your past relationships, the economy, the weather, an argument, or your age that is to blame. You and only you are responsible for every decision and choice you make, period. And I wrote underneath, I said, I'm glad you think that. The Buddha said something like that 2,500 years ago, so <laughs> glad you agree. You know, but she was really seeing, uh, you know, we get to that age where we start to say, oh, I can't just say, oh, it's my parents' fault anymore, you know. If I had different parents, then I'd be happy. It's like taking responsibility for who we are. And as I said, the Buddha said, it's possible. And we start to make this huge shift, both in our meditation practice, but also in life, where it's not what's happening that's important or determines whether we're happy or not, but how we're relating to it. This is huge in meditation, in life. It's not what's happening. It's how we're relating to it. And the same experience can happen, and people can relate to it very differently. And some have equanimity and peace and calm, and others be all riled up, because it's how we're relating to it. And we can only shift how we're relating to it by understanding that immediacy of the Vedna, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral and the reactions that might follow. And tracking that, beginning to understand that, and having a different set of values. Whereas I said, we start to prefer stillness, or calm, or compassion, 
to agitation or getting my own way or, you know, being right. We start to shift in our values. Pema Chodron said, meditation, our whole life, is learning to stay. Meaning, learning to, and they often talk, and she talks about leaning into the sharp point. Leaning into our present moment experience so we can know it as it is. This is what meditation does, allows us to do, offers the possibility of doing. It doesn't do it for us, I shouldn't put it like that, but this is the intention. You know, I started by talking about what is meditation? Well, you could give all kinds of answers to it, but basically it's training to be present and to know what's happening, to have some clarity about our experience, out of the confusion of this amoeba or reptilian-like brain that's always pushing and pulling and wanting and, you know, evaluating. It's like now, now, present, here. And then things can get very simple. You know, it can feel so complicated, and we are complicated beings. Life is complicated. I'm always amazed. Why does it have to be so complicated, you know? I was talking to, um, actually I was on retreat last week with Venerable Ajahn Suchito. He talked a lot about uh, disagreements and working with community and colleagues. And I said, yeah, you know, you put two people together and they'll disagree. And he said, you put one person together and they'll disagree. <laughs> you know, it's like, I think this. No, I don't. I think that. You know, it's, it's, our minds are so complicated. Part of what meditation does is simplify and say, just come back to this. And to start to trust that the this, this breath, this sensation, actually is a doorway. A doorway to some kind of truth, some kind of inner knowing. And I said earlier that you become your own teacher. You become the expert on you. And that's what you need to do. And that's what meditation does. It says, sit here and pay attention to this mind and this heart and start to discover what is leading you to true happiness. Not that amoeba kind of happiness of chasing after pleasure, but actually a deeper kind of happiness. And as we discover that for ourselves, it radiates out, just as people said, to be kinder, to be more compassionate, to not be such a jerk. We start to learn how to do this. And it doesn't have to be, you know, that you become a better person. Now I'm a meditator, I'm a Buddhist, I'm always kind and compassionate, you know. That's another identity. And that can bring as much judgment and as much aversion as any identity you take up. So it's really more simple, simpler than that. I actually saw this quote somehow, I got it a while ago, from Roger Ebert, who great movie critic who died earlier this year. But somehow he became a really great man through whatever he did in his life. He said, this is a quote from Roger Ebert, Kindness covers all of my political beliefs. No need to spell them out. I believe that if, at the end, according to our abilities, we have done something to make others a little happier and something to make ourselves a little happier, that is about the best we can do. To make others less happy is a crime. To make ourselves unhappy is where all crime starts. We must try to contribute joy to the world. 
That is true no matter what our problems, our health, our circumstances. We must try. I didn't always know this, and I'm happy that I lived long enough to find it out. So it's not about some, you know, very abstruse philosophy or even deep, profound meditation experiences, so they can be helpful, of course. It really is about the simplest of things, of, of this steadying and, and, and staying and stillness that allows us to begin to track in our own experience the kind of movements of mind that lead to unhappiness and the kind that lead to suffering. And what we tend to see is the movements that lead to this or this, whatever form they're taking, gross or subtle, they actually lead to more, more unhappiness, more suffering. And the, the mind that opens is receptive, is kind, is generous, that's where the happiness is to be found. And that's what the Buddha said, that's what the secret is. That actually in learning to let go, learning to let go, we actually achieve more happiness. We gain more than we ever let go of. So we begin this exploration to discover a kind of happiness that's not amoeba happiness. That's not just pushing and pulling on things and trying to get and have and be, but is actually some more intrinsic happiness, some simpler kind of happiness, some kindness like Roger Ebert talked about, and to begin to know that it's possible. It's possible for each and every one of us to our abilities and to the amount of our intention. It doesn't just happen by wishing it to be so. We also can't make it happen by forcing it to be so. But somewhere in between those two, we find that right amount of effort Because it does take effort to change. I'm sure you know that. That right amount of effort that meets the moment doesn't try to hang on to it, manipulate it, but doesn't float out here, kind of amoeba-like. Again and again, meeting this moment. I recently taught a beginning meditation class here um, at Spirit Rock. And I was interested to do it. I haven't done one for ages. Um, but I wanted to do an online version. So I did a class with 40 or 50 people, whatever, here in live. But they had a video camera, and so it was put up online. And I don't know, 150, 200 people did it online all over the world. And I interacted with them on Facebook, and they um, gave them interviews with practice guides. And I think it actually worked really well. And I was so touched by how much people benefited from these few weeks of training in basic mindfulness. And this is a quote from one of the participants. I've been enjoying the class very much these last few weeks. I found a special place and time and to meditate and find myself looking forward to the practice of meditation every morning. I even took the opportunity to meditate this week in a doctor's office while he was cleaning my wound of a burn with a brush. I focused on my breath while being aware of the pain, allowing it to flow and watching the many nuances of pain and emotion, such as sadness at the loss of my mother and care of the doctor and the care the doctor was giving me and taking care of me in this. 
I felt myself entirely calm in both my mind and body. It has been an, enlighten an enlightenment and proven to be an invaluable tool to me. So just by being present, you can learn to make this shift where instead of it being a source of aversion and resistance, we can open to the moment, open to the experience with compassion, with kindness, and with wisdom. And the more sensitive we get, the more those qualities are enlivened in us, the more they actually radiate out to others, and we naturally become kind. We naturally become compassionate. We naturally care, because we do that for ourselves. And this is the place, of course, we have to begin with kindness, with acceptance, with compassion for ourselves. And we do that by meditating and caring enough to pay attention, caring enough to want to understand this very complicated, sensitive mind and heart. So after me speaking for this time, I'm a little curious. Again, a few of you said, um, some responses about meditation, but I'd like to hear, you know, anything in response to what I said that touched you or challenged you or you're curious about, or also um, how meditation perhaps has benefited you. And I already see a hand. Sean is going to bring the microphone so we can hear. Say your name and then what do you have to say? Hi, I'm Chris. Hi. Hi. Um, I, was, I thought it was interesting when you were talking about the Buddha um, s saying that when there's um, kind of a reaction to the pain, when there's that second arrow, um, that then we move towards sort of craving and uh, sort of physical pleasures and escapes and that sort of thing. What came up for me was that when I get into that space, then and this is kind of a reference to the comment before of, you know, to become less of a jerk. That sometimes what happens for me is when that pain happens, then my reaction to it is, you know, even stronger. And what I do is I lash out. Mm. So that's kind of when, like the the um, the scratching of the itch is sometimes, you know, taking out my um, frustration or difficulty or internal aversion on my partner, sure. or et cetera, and. Um, so I just wanted to kind of make that connection. That yeah, yeah. And he does say that. He says our initial response is we resist it. We resist it with aversion and complaints or whatever. But because we don't, so that's nearly always our initial response. I don't like it and because I'm unhappy, I want to make you unhappy. So no, that's definitely understood as a way we react. But over time, to, to ameliorate those feelings, at some point we whether it's go to the fridge and get some ice cream or go watch a movie or whatever, because there's not the understanding of the suffering that, that that's causing and will continue to cause. And, you know, the teaching goes on. I didn't have time to read it. I had it in my notes that, that what can happen is we, you know, as we understand that process, because we see it again and again and we see it creates more suffering. Now not only are you suffering, they're suffering. So we've you know, lashed out, as you said, to our partner or a colleague or a family member, whatever. And so we actually exacerbate the suffering. What can happen is as we train in this way, we recognize that. And as we sincerely wish 
to not cause more suffering for ourselves or for others, we get to the point where there's just the first arrow. There will be pain in life. As Sylvia Borstein says, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. That first arrow, whatever it is, whether it's physical, injury, sickness, whatever, or you know, even emotional um, pain, we'll have that. that. That will continue to happen, but it's what we do with it that counts. As I said later, how we relate to that, how we respond to that, that's the important thing. We will get caught, we'll get struck by different forms of suffering. But how do we relate to that? And, and how do we learn from you know, what we do so habitually to strike out, to push away, to resist, to blame, to judge? Because as we get more sensitive, we see the suffering in that. Thank you. Yes, I don't know where Sean has gone, but right behind you, Sean. Okay. Thank you so much for your talk. It reminds me a little bit of a deja vu that years ago, I had a teacher, a spiritual teacher, and I was having a meditation period where I felt, wow, this is really amazing. I began to cry to her and I said, I'm really concerned that I'm figuring this out. I'm really, <clears throat> I'm feeling those feelings. I feel like I'm getting close to enlightenment. And she said to me, don't worry, you're not close. <laughs> you know, it was just a moment of feeling that connection. I'm being reminded again with you that how far, where my mind is and being a parent, I've never in my life wanted to do such a good job mm. in relationships. You know, it works, it doesn't work. I could blame him whenever I want. But it's my kids and this project is, I am so attached. Mm. So my question to you, because I'm, I'm, I'm really wanting to do a good job, if in meditation what the goal is, is to not put the sword in again, mm -hmm. but to be with the experience mm -hmm. and try to understand it. That word understand is my confusion because I think of it as to see it, label it, let it go. And what I'm hearing you say, to understand it means that I get into thinking. And I think thinking takes me away from mm -hmm. meditation. Mm -hmm. So when I have a thought, I go, oh, okay, judgment, mm -hmm. do the labeling. Now it's time to let go. But I'm hearing you say, no, no, kind of open to it. Mm -hmm. It's a great question. And, and, and a skillful means is all I can say. You know, sometimes you're totally right, in, especially in meditation. And we need to distinguish between what we do in meditation and what we do in real life in relationship with people. But in meditation, often the instruction is just let it go. You know, I said in my instructions, not now. And that's a very appropriate and skillful response. But it's not the only response because for two reasons. Oh, as soon as I say two, I'm like Monty Python for three reasons. Um, <laughs> the first is, you know, just we don't want to, because we can just proliferate around that. Um, and the second is we, we just see that letting it go is actually, you know, allows us to become more present. But there can be a, t a way we can use that to push away what's coming up for us. And mindfulness, you know, I, I had this line, I actually didn't use it, that, you know, we tell you to sit down and not think. Um, that's what, you know, people hear as the instruction in mindfulness. It actually isn't not to think, because we can't stop ourselves from thinking. 
and it would be foolish to try. We need to think. We need have these big brains to help us figure out the world. Uh, we just want a different relationship to thinking. And that sometimes means thinking about thinking, thinking about what we're thinking about, you know, having a perspective on it, bringing wisdom on it. It's a different kind of meditation than the not now, which is preferring calm and stillness. But it's a type of meditation practice that really has a place. It's more reflective. It's more investigative, it's more curious, and it stays with what's happening a little bit. It's a slippery slope though, so it's something we is best done out of a place of quietness where we do the first kind, the not now for a while, and then maybe something comes up and we're with it for a little while. So it definitely has a place, but each of us needs to figure out what that place is, and most of the time, the not now is the most helpful response. And we start to see actually that things get figured out without us figuring them out. That in the silence, some processing happens where responses, more skillful even responses can happen. So, you know, there's more I could say about that, but we're running out of time. But it is helpful actually not to think of meditation as just pushing away thoughts. And certainly in, in life, we don't want to be doing that. But this different relationship to thinking where the mind is trained enough to actually say, not think about that, think about this. That's pretty radical. It's also really difficult to do, but it's possible. So just to say that. And I see there are a few hands, but our time is up, so you're welcome to come up to me afterwards if it's something you want to say or ask about, but we should finish up to honor our time. I spoke longer than I thought. So let's just take a moment to sit quietly before everyone gets up to leave, just to reflect on the intention you had in coming out here to Monday night class. It really was an intention of kindness towards yourself and thereby to all of those people you'll meet because it was an intention to become more present, to be more connected to yourself, to your being. So really feel the blessings and the benefit of that to whatever degree it happened. It was the intention that was important that brought you here. Nourish that intention as you go into this week of, of work and family and commitments and busyness. This intention to be present, to be kind. It's the most important intention that you can cultivate and out of that all good things will flow. So I wish you blessings as you go out into the world, back to the world, back to your life and the important last pith instruction from Spirit Rock, turn right as you leave the property. <laughs> I live in Woodacre and I see people not doing that and it's really dangerous and it hurts our standing in the community because we told them that you would. So please.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.